Thank you, choir and Rhonda. I'm always grateful for our celebrating Black History Month with our singing of spirituals. And so this morning we gather at the river from Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. It's where his gospel begins. John is baptizing at the river. And then in verse 9, Mark writes, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. This is the word of the Lord. O oh God, attend to us in all the many places we feel lost and wander. And this time especially, O oh God, we pray that your spirit will attend to our ears and to my mouth as it speaks forth your word in Christ's name. Amen. There are lots of stories and lots of ways to begin them. One way to do so is what's known in literature as in medias res, which means in the middle. In the middle means that we have nothing about what happened up to that point. It just begins there. Columbo walks into a house and finds a dead body. The rest of the story, or the mystery, will be discovered going back to the beginning of the story to find out what transpired in order, in order for the dead body to happen. There are lots of books that open this way in medias res. The hero is facing a crisis. Homer's Iliad and Odyssey was the first to use this literature. The hero is facing a crisis. Star Wars, The New Hope, the first one I ever saw was in Medias Rest because it was actually the fourth episode of a nine-part epic. We had to go back and watch the first three episodes to discover the beginning. This morning's opening in Mark is just as powerful and in media's rest. Unlike Matthew and Luke and John even, they all have Jesus starting at the beginning. Mark starts his near the end of Jesus' life, 30 years into it, by showing up at the river by John the Baptist being baptized by him and then coming up out of the water, Jesus sees the heavens split open the spirit, like a dove, comes down and descends on him, and then Jesus hears a voice from heaven, 
You are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. And what Mark wants us to know, I think, is that we are supposed to ask this much at least, wow. Because as Mark tells it, we really don't know who Jesus is yet. We're supposed to say, wow, who is this guy that God confirms to be his son whom God loves and who, with whom God is well pleased? That's the way Mark starts. We don't know, it's Jesus. How many people in this room, you don't need to raise your hand, have waited all of your life for your father or your mother to confirm your being like God confirmed Jesus being. You are my beloved son. I love you with you with whom I am well pleased. It seems to me, if anything, a parent should do that at least, maybe every day. Jesus hears this from God, the creator of the universe. And then the plot thickens, they say, for no soon, just as soon as he comes up out of the water, feeling this incredible spiritual moment of power and personal affirmation of his being, that same spirit reaches down, grabs him by the collar, and hauls him into the wilderness that quickly, surrounded by snakes and scorpions and all kinds of wild animals, as well as Satan, Mark says. Satan means God's adversary. Let's just call him the devil. The devil loves hanging around in the wilderness because that's where we are most susceptible to being tempted. And it doesn't have to be a desert kind of wilderness. It could be a wilderness of affluence or success or despair or divorce or depression or addiction. It could be a wilderness of loneliness or self-righteousness or hubris. The wilderness is any place we end up alone separated from God and from others. That's the meaning of the word sin. And the devil loves it because that's where we are most prone to saying yes to the temptations that the devil throws our way. In Jesus' case, he was in that wilderness for 40 days alone. Nothing to eat, apparently, not anything to drink. And then Mark doesn't say this, but Luke and Matthew do that the devil then came to him and offered him three, three temptations, called them opportunities to make Israel a strong nation again. And these temptations that the devil gave Jesus were all options to become more powerful, to be a powerful Messiah that all the people in Israel had longed for since King David had ruled Israel a thousand years earlier. Mark simply says he was tempted by the devil. Matthew and Luke flesh it out. 
the first temptation, if you are really the son of God, turn these stones into bread. What an impact that would make on all of the hungry people in the world. Jesus with the power to turn those stones into bread and feed everybody. However, Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. He passed the first test. And the devil says, yeah, right. And then the devil takes him up to the highest point on top of the temple. And God says, throw yourself down from the temple and all the angels will come and lift you up so that you, you will not even strike your foot against a stone and just think there will be no more division and no more conflict and, and, and no more arguments and no more churches splitting off and forming new uh, congregations. It will all be sweetness and light and Jews and Presbyterians all gathered together in one place. And Jesus says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally, the devil takes him up to the highest mountaintop in the land and says, I will give you all the wealth and splendor and power that you need in order to maintain peace and justice and everything good in this world if you just simply turn to me to receive that power. And that's when Jesus said, out, get away from me, devil. Then left alone, the angels came and nursed him back to health. This temptation we need to take seriously because as Jesus faced it, after being confirmed and confirmed as God's son, that temptation was a temptation for power and influence. The very thing most of us go to school for or work hard for or hope for in our life, power and influence. And the temptation for Jesus was, would he claim that power and influence or would he instead be another kind of Messiah, a suffering servant Messiah? A Messiah who gives up all of that power and influence to the devil, which the devil uses in the end to crucify him. Y'all may have been around last week when I talked about the word impact and how it's used by every every corporation and firm and advertising agency and everybody else to try to say that's what it means to really have somebody get caught up in what you're doing. You need to make an impact. And I, I made the case that it's not a great word, really. It mostly has negative connotations, like when an asteroid runs into the earth, it makes an impact. Or when a fist hits a face, it makes an impact. An impact is a strong force used quickly. The stronger the force, the more the impact. The thing about impacts, however, is that the, the more you do this, the more it hurts, and the less you can keep it up. That's the deal about impact. You can't make it last. You hope it changes, but there's this like rule of physics that when you push something, it responds to resist, humans especially. 
In fact, the whole social culture that we live in is meant to be able to, to face an impact and to come back together around it. And the devil's saying to Jesus, you really want to be the son of God, then you need to make an impact in this world. For you to be God's son, you need to make an impact of power and influence. And these are the temptations. But Jesus chose not to make an impact in that sense. He chose powerlessness. He chose to play out all of his life unto his death as the suffering servant that we impacted him on. And then giving all this power up, even unto the cross, his last temptation, on the cross, his last temptation, surrounded by two criminals, when one criminal says, so you're supposed to be the Messiah, then save yourself and me too. And he didn't. He died. Making no more impact in the world than the other hundred crucified prisoners all around Jerusalem each day. He died. Did he change the world as far as influence goes? Every Roman Caesar had more power. Every Roman Caesar died and were replaced by another Caesar. But in three centuries, Constantine, the ruler of Rome at the time, decreed that the kingdom of Rome would now become Christian and nobody could remember the names of those previous Caesars. And then a little more than one century later, Rome too fell, Christendom and Rome too fell, even after Christianity had become the main religion in the known world. Since then, Christianity has been under the same temptation from the power of devils and Satan that Jesus faced in the wilderness. How much power and influence will we as Christians and the church use to make a difference? Or will we give it up for the sake of Jesus? From my vantage point, even in my own life, not to mention the history of Christianity, mostly it's power and influence we hang our hat on. Remember the Crusades, and the Reformation, and the Renaissance, all of the different church reform movements, all of the thousands of denominations that get formed, it seems like weekly, all looking for its own power and influence to make an impact in the world just the way we can do it. Remember the Roman Catholic Church and the Russian Orthodox Church and the mainline Protestant Church and the Evangelical Conservative Church and the Church of Jesus Christ itself that's gotten way too chummy with power and authority? Remember all that? Know it still. We keep giving ourselves over to the devil in the wilderness. And it's called 
way too chummy with power and politics. Beginning in the 1980s, Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority Movement saw our culture as being lost, and he was right in many ways. Drugs, sex, and rock and roll. It was a hard time. And the major moral majority was formed to try to bring structure back into our culture from a Christian perspective. But power and influence began to seep in to, to Falwell's ministry, and one thing became another, and then his ministry, his church, his movement began to invite candidates for president in to speak to his church and his school that Falwell liked. Constitutionally, we break the law when we invite one candidate in to our church to support versus all the rest. We can lose our tax status. African-American churches have done it. Evangelical conservative churches are doing it. Those churches, our churches, cannot tell you or anybody else who you should vote for, cannot support a candidate apart from all the others as a body, cannot demand that if you're going to be a member of this church, this is how you're going to vote. We cannot do this and be a body of Christ called the church. I was reading about this man in Texas. It's like one on my phone, and you know how you're reading it on your phone, and then you, you get something that interrupts you, and you never can get back to it. Well, uh, so I can't remember his name, but this guy's like a gazillion billionaire, uh, made a lot of money in fracking, and he's, he's a deeply faithful Christian, and his whole, his whole purpose in life, he publicly states, uh, is to influence through his power and money all of the candidates who run for office to make sure that they are all part of the MAGA movement. And in doing so, he wants to turn the whole state of Texas and every politician in Texas into a cookie-cutter follower of this man's idea of what it means to be a Christian. He's making an impact. And he wants his resources to be used for politically religious purposes. But the way I read it, it's the opposite of what Jesus' life was about. Jesus' movement influenced politics, but it did not make an impact on it, really, for 300 years. And it was a movement of love and justice and fellowship and especially friendship. Like the mustard seed, the tiniest of all seed, that when planted takes forever, and as you nurture the soil, it slowly begins to grow, and it becomes the tree that Jesus points to as our tree of faith. And the way you do that growing and nurturing is through slow, organic, relational friendship from one person to the next. It's slow, and it doesn't have any force. It's friendship. 
I was listening to this podcast by Curtis Chang and called Good Faith. And they are conservative evangelical Christians who are also anxious about where our world is going and their evangelical churches. Um, and, and, and they were saying the same thing that we're all saying, that for us to be Christians, the only way we can change the world and influence it is the way Jesus changed the world and influenced it, and that is by becoming suffering servants and friends to those that we do not agree with. We don't throw those people out of our congregation. We invite everybody in that we do not agree with as long as we're all willing to have a conversation around it. What a friend we have in Jesus, we sing. When Jesus was about to be crucified the night before, he sat with his disciples and he gathered them around him. And he knew what the devil was about to do through all of the power and influence of the, of the temple and the Roman Empire. He knew that was coming. And he gathered his disciples around him. And in John's Gospel, what Jesus says to them in John 15 is this, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So my command is this to you. As I leave you, love each other as I have loved you. For greater love has no one than this to lay one's life down for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, God will give you. This is my command, love one another. And what if friendship, but bottom up, not top down, not power and influence, but love and embrace, it's bottom up just like Jesus' whole life gave witness. And it is this kind of friendship, like the mustard seed, that grows and takes root. This is the battle that we are in, friends, right now. It is not so much for our country as it is for Christianity. We cannot give in to all of the voices out there claiming that we need to claim our power and influence in a way that's not like Jesus. When Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, he's not talking about another crusade. He's talking about our willingness to give ourselves up to others in love and be a friend to those in need and those we do not agree with, to befriend them in the way that Jesus befriended his disciples, even if it leads to suffering. 
especially if it leads to suffering. For that is when we are reminded that the last will be first and the first will be last. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.